0: If you would turn to Revelation chapter 18, and we want to finish the message we started last week. The book of Revelation is a great book, can be a confusing book, but the message is so important. And last week you mentioned the fact that if you look at the book of Revelation, it's kind of organized around uh, seven churches, seven seals seven trumpets, seven bowls, and then the conclusion at the end is heaven on earth. But the theme that comes through the book of Revelation in all kinds of ways is that history is not circular, but it's linear. It's moving toward an ultimate goal. And there are real challenges to those who would want to enter into the kingdom of heaven on earth, that there are things that are opposing us from Trusting God in Jesus for that future reality. And one of the things that is highlighted in the book is the fact that there is a a world system that opposes people seeking God, trusting God. And that world system is made up of three elements, um, tyrannical government, false religion, and a culture or a society that is godless and does various things to discourage us and to distract us from trusting Christ and pursuing God. And what we find in the book of Revelation is we find this picture of Babylon the Great. And Babylon goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which was the first, you could say, ungodly society in rebellion against God as a collective recorded in the Bible. And so throughout the book of the Throughout the Bible, rather, we have references to Babylon, both in its historical manifestation in terms of Babylon in the Old Testament. But it's also a picture of all societies that are ungodly. And the society that we see in Revelation 17 and 18 is the final society in rebellion against God and God's judgment on that society. And in these two chapters, There are two ways in which this ungodly society is pictured. One uh, picture is that of a prostitute or a harlot, and that's in Revelation 17. And I'll just very briefly remind you of what the point in that chapter is before we get into Revelation 18. The point of the chapter is that living in this world is not without danger, it's not a, a walk in the park. It's a walk through a minefield and the picture that we have in Revelation 17 is that of a harlot that seeks to seduce us away from the true God and to keep us from entering into heaven on earth, the kingdom of God. It's interesting in ancient Greek mythology, you had what was called sirens and sometimes they were also uh, overlapped with the idea of mermaids. And so sometimes they're talked about in very similar ways. But actually a siren was a half woman, half bird, whereas the mermaid is half woman, half fish. But the common theme was that these um, creatures would seduce sailors on the sea and cause their ships to run aground and be destroyed or cause the men to go to them and be killed or be um, harmed in some way. And for the sirens, they would sing a very sweet song. Beyond being beautiful, they would sing a song that sounded so sweet, attractive, and alluring. And it would seduce uh, the men of the, on the sea. And there's a story in Homer's Odyssey about Odysseus, who is the captain of this vessel, I guess. And he put wax in the ears of his crew so that they could not hear the songs of the sirens. But he wanted to, and so he had his men um, actually tie him up to the mast of the ship So that he would not direct the ship into the rocks. But he wanted to hear it. But it's just a picture of this alluring uh, song by beautiful women that attracts you not to something good, but to death and destruction. And that's the exact picture that we have of the harlot, Babylon the harlot in Revelation 17. And one of the main points that I just want to review very quickly is last week I highlighted the fact that we might think that the danger of the world in that respect is the danger of things like gangster rap or R-rated movies or MSNBC or Vanity Fair magazine. Things that we would put in categories that those are obviously not godly, obviously opposing what we believe as Christians. And we may not realize that we can listen to Carpenters music, watch Hallmark movies, listen to Fox News and read the book Little Women and still be hearing things that are not the word of God and therefore leading us away from the truth, because that's just the reality of anything produced by someone who's not a Christian. It's not going to portray the truth as it should it's not to say that there aren't good things in it not to say there's not the reality of common grace that there's not the image of man still remnant and fallen man and we can still benefit from those things in various ways but we should be aware of the fact that they're not without their own danger there is still a danger there In this world. And so that danger is described as a harlot, not in the terms of a physical harlot, but a spiritual harlot. Not in terms of physical adultery, but drawing us toward spiritual adultery. Well, in Revelation 18, we have a little different picture. It's the picture of Babylon the Great, not as a harlot, but as a city. So it pictures for us not the seductiveness of the world. But in a sense, the productiveness of the world and how the productiveness of the world actually can draw us away from Christ and God as well. And so let me read for us and follow along with me, if you will. Revelation chapter 18. It says in verse one, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority And the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities, pay her back even as she is paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes any more. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen "'and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood "'and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood "'and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume "'and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep "'and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives.'" The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, "Woe, woe! the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute Players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived. By your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the Word of God. And so last week we talked about the fact that the culture, the ungodly society, may cancel you, especially as a Christian, but God will cancel the culture. And that's what these two chapters are talking about. The godless society or culture is not your friend and evil is always self-destructive. In fact, uh, even in our own day and time, you can see how um, different factions, even within ungodly society, will actually attack and destroy each other because that's the nature of evil. But in chapter 18, we want to look at two points, the first of which is the future of the godless society is devilish and judged. If you look at the first three verses, what you see is you see a reference to Babylon the Great. It says in verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. The point of this section is simply to say that it's the nature of evil to get worse, not better. You don't get better by doing something evil or get doing something wrong. You don't improve society by embracing things that God forbids. Your society gets worse. That's just the way it works. And so there's a movement from evil to more evil. And I think that's what's being pictured here is when it talks about becoming a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean spirit of every unclean and hateful bird. It's a picture of society becoming thoroughly wicked, thoroughly evil, and progressing in that direction. And you actually see that kind of thing talked about in Romans chapter 1 when it talks about the fact in verse 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So it's talking about the wrath of God on society in a society in which men suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they don't want to live according to the truth. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to uh, submit to it. And it talks about in Romans one, God's judgment on society. And it talks about God giving societies over in three different ways. In verse 24, it says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So the first sign of God giving a a society over to itself because it's rejected the truth is dishonored bodies. It's immorality and immorality being embraced as the norm. And then it says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So it's talking about homosexuality, uh, degrading passions. And so once a society rejects the truth, then it begins to embrace that which is unnatural in society. Not that people just are doing that sort of thing. It's that society begins to embrace that as the norm. And then we see in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So you have dishonored bodies, degrading passions, and then depraved minds. Once a society begins to reject the truth of God, they begin to think in ways that are just crazy. And you begin to have depraved thinking. And that... Brothers and sisters, is where we find ourselves as a country. We see all of those things taking place in our country. Uh, Embracing of immorality as the norm. Embracing of perversion as the norm. Embracing of depraved thinking about people and life as the norm. And if you don't embrace that too, you get canceled. And God says, I'm going to cancel that culture that seeks to cancel me, and my truth, and my word. And so what we see in verses 4 through 8 is an urgent call to escape God's coming judgment. In verse 4, it says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. To come out of her means, figuratively speaking, do not give in to compromise. It's not leaving the world. We can't leave the world and leave the world behind we're going to be in the world but we're not not to be of the world and so we're to not compromise we're not to embrace uh the norms of uh society that we see in our day and time it's interesting david wells defined worldliness in this way he said worldliness is everything in a culture that makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd Everything in a culture that makes sin look normal and righteousness odd. So we have gay marriages on TV and in movies. That's to be normal. Uh, But we see oftentimes Christians or pastors in movies and TV being portrayed as abnormal. As kind of out there somewhere. Not really with it. Not really knowing what's going on. And uh, actually... um, A negative thing. And that's what worldliness does. But it says in verses 4 through 8 that God has remembered her iniquities. For us as Christians, the Bible says God will not remember our iniquities. That doesn't mean He has Alzheimer's, doesn't mean He can't remember things. He remembers every single thing that ever has happened, including every single one of our sins. It's not that He doesn't know what our sins are. It means to remember their iniquities means to remember them for the sake of judgment. He promises us as Christians he will not remember our sins for the sake of judgment. He knows what we've done. He doesn't forget what we've done, but he loves us anyway. He accepts us anyway. He rejoices over us anyway because his son died for our sins and we are forgiven of those sins. But he says that he has remembered the iniquities of the great city. And it goes on to talk about the fact that um, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. Now, if you read carefully, you might see where it says in verse 6 at the beginning, pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. Some might think that means God is going to give People more than what they deserve. They send, you know, at a five, and God's going to give them a ten, going to double it. It's not what it means. Literally, it, it says, duplicate f- for her sins, or double the double. It basically means give her what her sins deserve. That's why it says in verse seven, to the degree that she glorified herself, to the same degree, give her this. It's the punishment will fit the crime. God will judge justly. That's that's the picture that is taking place there. Well, what's interesting to me is when we think about the future of the ungodly culture or the future of the ungodly society, the Lord Jesus said with regard to the end times that the days of Noah are a picture of the end times. And he said in Matthew 24, for the coming of the Son of Man, will be just like the days of Noah. And so if you look back at Genesis 6, this is what it says about the days of Noah. In verse 5 it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then the Lord goes on to tell Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. It seems to be saying that as we get closer to the return of Christ, the world is bec- going to become like it was in the days of Noah. It's going to be filled with violence. That men are going to be um, filled with only evil thoughts and evil lifestyles. And so what we see going on here is the progression of an ungodly society when it rejects the truth. And that's what we see to some degree in our own society. One of the interesting things about where we are in our country is that there's a lot of talk about um, what we need to do and about Christian nationalism. You may have heard that term before. Um, Those who aren't Christians really uh, are afraid of any talk about a nation that actually is Christian. And even among Christians, some Christians aren't sure they like the idea of Christian nationalism. But one of the things we have to realize is that there's no such thing as a neutral society. Every society has a God. Every society has a standard that is derived from that God, a standard of right and wrong. And every person in that society will make moral choices. And those moral moral choices will reflect the standard and the God of the society. And so we may talk about things like secularism, where people don't believe in God, but that doesn't mean there isn't a God that they worship. The Bible talks a lot about idolatry. It never talks about anyone not having a God. It only talks about those who worship the true God and those who worship false gods. So even atheists worship a God, the God of their own making, which is primarily themselves, their own opinions their own ideas about life, but everybody has a God, even if they would say it's me. I'm the captain of my fate, whatever it might be. And so every society has a God, therefore, as well, even if it's the idea that man knows best. Men can decide what... um, men are and women are and how they should live and and how we're going to make a utopia on this planet we will come up with it on our own just like they were thinking back at the tower of babel we will build a tower into heaven and we will keep ourselves together and we'll make this world great in defiance of god and so that's what we see happening and that's what we have to realize is happening in our day as well well that leads me to the the last point is that the kind of culture that we desire shows what city we belong to. If you look at verses 9 through 19, that's all about people mourning the destruction of the great city. And you've got three classes of people. You've got the kings and the merchants, and then you've got another larger group of sailors and passengers that are mourning the loss of this culture this world this society so it talks about in verse 9 the kings of the earth will weep and lament over her and in verse 11 the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her and they're mourning not because they care about the harlot per se or the great city per se per se but because of what they're losing the power they're losing the possessions they're losing the pleasures that they're losing it's all about what They're losing. Uh, You can see in verse uh, 17, every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea cry out. They throw dust on their heads. They're weeping and mourning over the loss of the great city. And they say in one hour her great wealth has been destroyed, which means God's judgment is just and it's swift. It will come swiftly. Now, you might wonder, why is there all this talk about cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones? You know, in verse 12 and following, that is a reflection of the Roman society. A reflection of Rome in that day and time, which which is representative or just one expression of the opulence of an ungodly society. And if you read closely, you'll notice that it talks about not only these... Uh, Thing, marble and bronze and those kinds of things, but it also talks about um, human lives and slaves and those kinds of things which are highlighting the fact that this ungodly society is pursuing power and pleasure and possessions at whatever cost, even at the cost of human bodies and human souls. That's literally what it says, human bodies and the soul's Of men, whatever cost. And that's why it also references the fact that a couple places where found in this city is the blood of believers and the blood of everyone slain in the earth. The pursuit of power, possessions, pleasures at whatever cost, no matter who stands in the way. And so you've got this mourning of all this. Being lost on the one side. On the other side, in verses 20 through 24, you've got rejoicing. In verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And then it talks about a strong angel taking up a stone like a great millstone and throwing it into the sea, so will Babylon the great be thrown down. Now, in the ministry of Jesus... Lord Jesus talked about the fact that if there anyone is a stumbling block to a child, to one who believes in him, uh, it would be better for them if they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea. So the picture there is of the judgment upon stumbling blocks. And as I mentioned last week, a stumbling block is something that trips you up and causes you to fall into sin or even worse trips you up and causes you causes you to fall into hell and so the picture there is that this babylon is a stumbling block who trips people up and causes them to fall into sin and even worse into hell and god is going to judge and bring an end to this stumbling block of the great babylon that is both the great prostitute and the great city and so It goes on to talk about the the end of what we would call normal life. It says in verse 22, the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard anymore. Uh, Craftsmen and their craft will not operate anymore. There won't be a sound of a mill anymore nor the light of a lamp. There won't be any weddings anymore. There won't be any producing of all these various things that people are looking to for life. Um, everything is going to be shut down. God is going to bring it to an end. And first what he says, saints and prophets, believers will rejoice over that. And so what are they really rejoicing over? It can be linked to what is called the imprecatory Psalms in the Old Testament, where there are Psalms that. Are sometimes a little surprising at the way they rejoice over and call for God's judgment on evil and sin and wickedness. And it's very easy to misunderstand what's going on there. You might think that sounds like they're being mean and vindictive and revengeful, but it's not. It's about seeing people who are set in their sin and refuse to receive the mercy of God through Jesus and are a opposing and oppressing the people of God and ruining God's creation. And they're praying that God would bring it into it and bring in heaven on earth instead. And so that's what we see reflected here as well. And so we may wonder what is life going to be like uh, just before Jesus comes back. If it is going to get like the days of Noah then is it going to be like a dystopian kind of, you know, a dystopian kind of movie where everything is just out of order and, and people are living out in the desert and it's just crazy? I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be like it's described uh, before the flood came with violence and wickedness to a greater degree. And yet there's going to be a, a, an interesting normalcy about it. There's going to be weddings and people going about their lives because it also says in Luke 17, uh, Jesus says in verse 26, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Then it says it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus says it's going to be the same way when I return and bring judgment on ungodly society. He says on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Now, what does that have to do with the end times? It has to do with what we see reflected here in Revelation 18. If you read the story of what was going on, God sends angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He has mercy on Lot and Lot's wife and his daughters. And they take them by the hand and they're bringing them out of the city. But they tell them, God's going to destroy the city. We'll let you go into this little place called Zor because you requested it. But do not look back. And we find out in the course of the story that Lot's wife turns and looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Now, what is that telling us? It's telling us That she was not like the saints and prophets who rejoice over God's judgment and his destruction of the evil city. But she is like the merchants and the kings who mourn over the loss of the evil city. So she received the same judgment as the ones in the evil city. And so that's what the Lord is saying. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't. Love the evil city because there's a better city promised you. It's a heavenly city. It's a city purchased for us by Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, what city do I want? It's just like Augustine. He he wrote about uh, the earthly city or the city of man and the city of God. And the question is, do do I want the city of God or do I want the city of man? It's also reflected in the Pilgrim's Progress. Where pilgrim or Christian is fleeing the city of destruction, and he is going toward the celestial city, and so you find him uh, talking to his wife at the very beginning and to his children, and he says, "Oh my dear wife, and you the children of my bowels, I your dear friend am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lies hard upon me. I am." "...for certain informed," and he's talking about reading the Bible, "...that our city will be burned with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow, both myself, with thee my wife, and you my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except some way of escape be found." And he says, "...but I don't see that that way of escape yet." And so he's talking about the fact that he has his burden of sin on his back. He's reading the Bible and he sees God promising a just judgment on ungodly society and all those who love the ungodly society. And he says, we need to get out of here. We need to escape. We need to flee. I'm just not sure where to go and what to do. And the interesting thing is in the story, his wife and his children and his neighbors think he's crazy. In the story of Lot, he tells his, what appears to be, his daughter's fiancés or boyfriends or something. He tells them that God's going to destroy the city and they think he's joking. And they're destroyed in the city. It's the same kind of dynamic here. And it's interesting that it talks about uh, Pilgrim as he's running away. People are, The neighbors and his family are saying, come back, come back. And he covers his ears. He puts his fingers in his ears and he runs away shouting, life, life, eternal life. And it says, so he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. That's a reference to Lot's wife. He did not look back on the city of destruction because he was pursuing the celestial city. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then later on in that same chapter, it says, talking about people of faith, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, <clears throat> for he has prepared a city for them. And then in Hebrews 13:14 it says, for here we do not have a lasting city. Why? Because God's going to destroy it. But we are seeking the city which is to come the heavenly city, heaven on earth, the new Jerusalem, as it talks about at the end of the book of Revelation. So that brings us to the application which we made some of that last week. We talked about the fact that the call of these chapters is to cancel the culture ourselves. Even if the culture cancels us, that we're to cancel the culture in light of God going to cancel the culture because that's what it says in Galatians 6 when Paul says but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world it's basically saying the world has already canceled me doesn't want anything to do with me and I've already canceled the world I don't want anything to do with the world. Now he's not talking about people. He's not talking about lost people and loving lost people and being engaged with lost people. He's talking about the world that tempts him away from God, that tempts him away from real life, true happiness in God through Jesus. So that made him a much more loving person to both believers and unbelievers. He had to cancel the world that had canceled him in order to love the world as he should. And so the book of Revelation calls us to overcome, as I mentioned last time. In Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. The Call to Overcome, and it's pictured in the Pilgrim's Progress. If you recall the story, those who've read the story, there's a story about the city of vanity. And in the city of vanity is a fair called Vanity Fair. And that city and that fair are on the road to the celestial city. And every person has to go through that city. You cannot go around that city. You have to go through that city. You have to live in this world. You have to live in this world that's characterized as a prostitute seeking to seduce you and it's pictured as a city with producing all kinds of things that is that are meant to lure you away from God. And so you have this picture of this city. And it's interesting how Bunyan describes the city. He says, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, bawds, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and what not. At this fair there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood red color. If you notice, he talks about, obviously, terrible things like theft and adultery and murder. But he also talks about things like houses and lands and... Husbands and wives and children. Which goes back to the fact that worldliness isn't just about doing the worst thing you can think of. It's about replacing God with the things of this world, whether it's a wife or a child or a job or a house or upward mobility, whatever it is. And that's why it's so dangerous, because it's so pervasive. The very things we love and our gifts from God can be turned into idols that keep us from God. That's why it's so dangerous. So what do we do? Well, it's interesting if you read the account um, in Vanity Fair in the city and at this fair, um, Christian and hopeful are persecuted. They're beaten up, they're tortured, and ultimately, Hopeful is killed. And yet, they're described as those who looked different, talked different, and thought differently. Because they had no desire for the things of the world. Because they were headed toward the celestial city. They had their eye on the promises of God. And so... We have to realize the danger we're in, but most of all, realize the solution. And the solution is what we sang about. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And so... In verse 5 of chapter 18, it talks about the fact that her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. What we don't want is God to remember our iniquities for the sake of giving us what we deserve. We don't want that. And that's what Pilgrim says at the beginning of his story. I've got a burden on my back and I don't know what to do, it, but I know I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to face judgment And so what is the solution? Well, the solution is back in chapter 17, verse 14, when it mentions the lamb. It says, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. There are two groups in that verse. There are those who are warring against the lamb and those who are warring with the lamb. Those who are warring with the Lamb are forgiven; their sins will not be remembered. It's only those who are at war with the Lamb whose sins will be remembered. And so, if we if we remember the Lamb like we do in the Lord's Supper, He will not remember our sins. But if we do not remember the Lamb as we do in the Lord's Supper, He will remember our sins. We need to remember the Lamb. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, of the culture, of everything wrong in this life. The bottom line is this. We will receive justice only if we refuse mercy. We will receive justice, but only if we refuse mercy. That's the gospel. The gospel is God offering us mercy. And I would encourage anyone in here this morning that has not received the mercy of God in Jesus, I urge you to do so, to turn from your sin and trust yourself to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And he will rescue you from your sin. He will satisfy you in God, and he will not remember your sins for judgment. Jesus is an able and willing savior for sinners. We only receive justice if we refuse mercy. And it's very clear that God says, I do not take delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and be saved. That's the heart of God. And that should be our heart for those around us in this world who are not saved. We don't go around cursing them and wanting them to be condemned. We go around telling them that there's an answer to the coming condemnation. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement of your word that tells us the truth about the dangers we're in, about our own need for a savior. And yet it also proclaims to us, if there is a Savior, help every one of us here today, Lord, I pray to turn our eyes to Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.